Uh, we're going to be looking at Ezekiel chapter um, 14 tonight. And we're going to do something a little bit differently this semester. Uh, normally what we do at RUF is that we just sort of um, pick a book of the Bible and kind of march our way through it. So last year we went through the book of Ephesians. Uh, next semester we're going to go through the Old Testament book of Judges. And for this semester we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to explore what the Bible has to say about relationships, dating, sexuality, marriage, singleness. What does the Bible say about these things? And so this, is, this requires us to be a little bit more topical in the way that we do this. Um, one of my good friends, when he was in high school, got up the courage to ask a special someone on a date. And uh, he called her up on the phone. I think, you know, I don't know, it was a junior, sophomore, junior year. Calls this girl up. She agrees to go with him to the movies. Uh, he's not all that courageous, though, because he brought a friend with him. He brought a wingman. And uh, so the three of them go on this date together, a group, a group date, I guess. And they're sitting in the movie. She's sitting between them. And um, at some point in the movie, he, you know, 20 minutes in, you know, high school guys are trying to muster up the courage to hold her hand, to, to kind of inch her hand over and hold it. And so he does that. He kind of does it, reaches, grabs her hand, and she accepts. She lets him hold his hand. So now they're sitting there with two sweaty, interlocking hands. And now the movie is like amazing. It's exhilarating. It's like the best movie he's ever seen. Until about halfway through the movie when he leans over to whisper something to her. And not only is she holding his hand... <laughs> She's holding his friend's hand as well. I mean, I can't picture this. You know, just, she's just sitting there with two hands out, holding these guys' hands. And so she went immediately, you know, my friend immediately goes into, like, freak-out mode, and now the movie sucks, and, you know, he wants his money back and never sees her again. But what I want you to see is that in this compressed two-hour window of this guy's life, he, he went from nervous to fear to, you know, Courage and exhilaration and joy and then rejection and betrayal and <laughs> anger. And I mean, you, you know what this is like, right? It, most of you have experienced sort of the confusing swirl of emotions that are relationships. And so really what we want to do this semester is to see how the Bible really is God's way of helping us to navigate through these turbulent issues, these, these turbulent waters of relationships specifically. And it really is our hope here at RUF that Jesus really does transform the way that we do relationships. Now, I know, I, I know that there are some of you here that certainly aren't, that don't consider yourselves Christians. I don't presume that everybody is, and I don't, I don't presume that everybody even puts stock in the Bible. But what I want to do is, is, is just to explore that together and see if the scriptures hold out some wisdom for us in the way that we think about relationships. So with all that said, let's actually look at the Bible. Uh, we're going to look at Ezekiel chapter 14 tonight, and we're going to begin in a place that may seem kind of weird and counterintuitive to you, but it's in terms of idolatry. So let's look at Ezekiel chapter 14. If you would, just reference it, and I'll read it, and then we'll uh, look at it together. Beginning in verse 1. Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? 
Therefore speak to them and tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. When any Israelite sets up idols in his heart and puts a wicked stumbling block before his face and then goes to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him myself in keeping with his great idolatry. And I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have all deserted me for their idols. If you would, uh, just pray with me as we consider this passage together, okay? So let's pray. Uh, Father, as we turn our attention to this passage, uh, we need you to be our teacher. Uh, We have no hope apart from your Holy Spirit to come and to open up our eyes, to unclog our ears, and to show us that which is truly beautiful. So would you teach us now in these moments, and and we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, worshiping idols. What what does that have to do with relationships? Well, I I want to try to answer four questions tonight. I, I want us to look at what idols are, what idols do, what idols have to do with relationships and dating, and how we get healing from our idols. Okay, so what idols, what in the world they are in the first place, what they do, uh, what they have to do with relationships, and then how we find healing from them. Okay, so let's look first at what idols are. Idols, biblically speaking, are basically counterfeit gods that we worship. It's anything that we take out in the world and, and, and use it in a way where it functions as God to us. And so if you think about it, uh, the Bible doesn't relegate idols to um, you know, figurines or statues or things that kind of may Im- immediately pop in your head like it does me. This is, this is why this passage, as you heard over and over, it talks about idols in their heart. These can be intangible things, things that we worship inside, meaning What is it that you find the most joy from? What is it that is the most important thing to you? That's kind of what it talks about is an idol. It's what you are worshiping, what you are really living your life for. What it is that you daydream about, what it is that you fantasize. And you can kind of consider yourself religious, but on the inside you have a, you may be worshiping something else. And so really kind of the classic example of this is Gollum from Lord of the Rings, right? I mean, you've seen the movies, you've read the books. Gollum is obsessed with the ring. He's got to get it. It's all he thinks about. It's all he talks about. He wakes up in the morning, he's thinking about his precious. He goes to bed and he's thinking about that. This is, this is basically what he is living his life for. This is kind of what uh, idols are. And really, they could take any form is kind of what I want you to see in this kind of beginning point as we start out. They could take any form. You may consider yourself religious. You may consider yourself spiritual. But you really could be living for your career. That could be the thing that you wake up thinking about and wanting to do. You may be living for money. You may be living for sexual fulfillment. I just want to get out and have an amazing sex life. I want to marry somebody really attractive. This may be what you are functionally actually living for and thinking about, right? You may be living for your grades. Those may be the most important thing to you. Your family. It, it, it could be anything, right? It could be anything. You know, there's this... Um, Amazing line from the song Awake My Soul by Mumford and Sons. And uh, I really think that they capture this perfectly. You know the line if, if you're familiar. In these bodies we will live, in these bodies we will die. Where you invest your love, you invest your life. That's it. Where it is that you are investing your love, what your heart is gravitating in, what your heart is investing in, your life will follow. Your life always follows the lead of your heart. Whatever controls your heart controls your life. 
That's what you have to see. And here's the kicker, is that everybody in this room struggles with this. Everybody in this room has this whole network of idols that are in our heart that we worship. And again, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you consider yourself spiritual or not. We, all, we are all living for something. Whatever it is that you are living for, that's what the Bible says you're really worshiping. So that's what idols are. But what do they do? I mean, you know, what's the point? What's the big deal? Three things that idols do. First thing that they do is that they promise you lies. They say to you, look... I will satisfy you. I will fulfill you. I will give you the rush and the charge that you have never gotten before. But, of course, they can't make good on their promises. You know what's interesting um, to me is the checkout aisle at the grocery store with all the magazines right there, People Magazine and kind of all these, all these magazines that are cataloging the lives of the most beautiful, famous, richest people in the world. And I was just in the grocery store the other day, and, and you know, you see all, like all the drama of all of these sort of couples that get together, and you would think, okay, if this is like the two most attractive people in the planet with tons of money and tons of fame, and they get together, you would think, you know, that'd be pretty that would be a good mate for you, right? The most a beautiful person in the world with tons of money and lots of fame. And, oh, I got that too. But um, <laughs> you see, time and time again, just the wheels fall off of their relationships, right? I mean, divorce and drug addiction and drama. And it's, you know, it's, it's so prevalent, it's just cliche now, where these couples get together and it's just, it just kind of blows up. Why? Why is it so cliche? This is history saying to you, it's never enough. The fame, the beauty, the money, it's never enough. It doesn't satisfy, even though you think it does and they think it does. You get it and it just doesn't work. You want more and eventually the whole thing kind of crumbles. This is what, li- this is what idols do. They lie to you. They promise you, I will fulfill you, and they don't. Ben Gibbard, who is the lead singer of Death Cab for Cutie, Worst band name ever. (laughs) Sorry, Death Cab fans. Uh, Ben Gibbard wrote an article in Paste Magazine a few years ago. Paste Magazine is a music magazine. And he was basically explaining how music is the number one important thing in his life. It's more important than his relationships. It's more important than anything else. He basically looks at you and says, look, I am living for music. And in the very next breath, this is what he writes. Quote, I find it very hard to accept the wonderful things in my life. My life really is great. I do exactly what I want to do for a living. I have a wonderful person to share my life with. Zoe Deschanel. I have a great family. I have great friends. But somehow there's a void. I mean, he basically tells you, look, music is what I am living for. And I love it. And I got all this great stuff around me and there's a void. You felt that, right? I mean, you have felt that. When you thought getting this or keeping this would work, that it would fulfill you, that it would satisfy you, and it didn't. Just left you hollow, wanting something else. That is the first thing. Idols promise you lies. Here's the second thing. They demand sacrifice. They demand service. You know, there, there are some cultures uh, historically, and I guess some cultures still now, where they literally sacrifice animals to appease their idols, to appease their gods. And in some horrific cases, they actually sacrifice their own children to appease these idols. Idols of the heart are no different. They demand service and sacrifice as well. They say, look, I will satisfy you, I will fix you, I just need you to do something for me. 
And my wife Catherine and I, when we were living in Charlotte, um, we got to know this uh, family. And, and the, the man, the husband in this family, um, his idol was clearly his job. Uh, it, and maybe that was related to money or success or something else. I'm not really sure, but it was his job. And so what that ended up happening for him was that he would go into the office early. He would come home from the office late. He would be responding to emails from his phone at the dinner table. He'd work on the weekends. He'd work on vacations. And his idol of money or of his job, his you know, success or whatever, was looking at him and basically saying, look, you can have me. I just need you to sacrifice your family. And he said, okay, I'll do it. I will do it in order to get you. Well, here's another example. You know how when you're at like Chili's or Applebee's or Proper or wherever, and you are sharing a uh, dessert, and uh, you won't share the dessert like everybody else's because you want to be a certain weight? In that moment, what you are doing is that you are worshiping. You are offering your body basically as a sacrifice to the image of what you want to be and saying, look, I want to be this. I've got to be this. And that is going to require sacrifice and service from me, and so I won't partake. Or just ways that you do it just all the time is, is just working out relentlessly or running all the time, sometimes multiple times a day. This is what this looks like. One more example. If your idol is your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you know what you end up sacrificing is uh, the rest of your friends or uh, your family, or your schoolwork. They sort of become the sacrificial lambs that die on the altar of you worshiping your idol of your boyfriend or girlfriend. I mean, how many countless examples have we heard of where so-and-so gets together with so-and-so, and they just sort of drown into each other and cut off all of their relationships, right? I mean, this is, this is what is happening. The friends and the family and the schoolwork, whatever, becomes the sacrificial lamb to satisfy that idol, this is what is going on. There are countless examples of this, but I think you kind of get the point because, I mean, Mumford and Sons are explaining it, right? It's, it's whatever it is that you are uh, truly loving, your life will follow. Whatever controls your heart controls your life. Here's the third thing idols do. They punish you when you fail them. So they promise you lies, they demand service and sacrifice, and they punish you when you fail them. Here's what, this, here's what I mean by that. When you let down your idol, you don't get what you want, or, or you, uh, you fail in some way, you are just eaten up and buried under the weight of your guilt and your depression and, and anger and bitterness and whatever else. And so what this looks like is, you know, you hear of high school students who are playing sports, and a kid goes out and has a bad game and comes home and says, that sucked, I had a bad game. You have some high school students that go out and have a bad game and then come home and commit suicide. When, when you fail your idol, if this is the thing that you are living for, and you fail it, it just mercilessly berates you. Or if you are living for your grades and really sort of being the top of your class or maybe impressing your professors or your family, and you fail, you, you know, screw up on a test or whatever, you're just buried under the weight of all of that guilt and all that shame and beating yourself up inside. Here's a slippery one, uh, but you can actually make an idol out of being the religious person. Of saying, look, I really want to be the guy or the girl that is uh, on fire for Jesus, the Christian stud who goes to everything, whose worship is always intense, who gets the gospel, who shares the gospel as a quiet time every day, never misses it. I want to be that guy. I want to be that person. And if that's the thing that you are living for, which is really more about you than it is about Jesus, when you fail, when you make a mistake, when you slip up, what happens? Boatloads of shame. 
quote the Ava Brothers, right? I mean, you're just buried under the shame and you beat yourself up and you say, look, I have got to beat myself up as, I've got to feel bad about this as long as I possibly can in order to atone for it. You're just kind of whipping your back. This is what you're doing. These idols are punishing you when you fail them. And so here's the picture. Uh, This is the whole point here, is that your idols control you. You think that you possess them, but it's the other way around. You know, I heard this story recently about these hunters kind of out in this remote part of, like, Australia or Africa. I can't, I can't really remember. You know, these tribal hunters, they were hunting for monkeys that they would eat. I don't know if it's a delicacy or whatever. They would eat these monkeys. And um, the way that they hunted and killed these monkeys was fascinating because what they did was, you know, there was no, like, 22s and camo involved. There's no stealth, no spears. What they would do is they realized that the monkeys loved this particular seed from this particular fruit. And this seed was very aromatic, and so they could just sort of smell it from wherever. And so what they would do is the hunters would come up to this dirt embankment, sort of a dirt wall, and they would kind of dig a tunnel into the wall about arm's length. And in the back of that tunnel, they would put a little seed, and then they'd walk away. And so what would happen is the monkey would smell the seed, come up to the dirt embankment, reach in, grab the seed, but because it was grabbing it, it made a fist with its hand, and as a result, it couldn't pull its hand out of the dirt tunnel. And so it's stuck there. If it lets go, it can run away free. But it doesn't let go, and the hunter just sort of walks up and smacks it on the head or something and kills it, and then eats it. This... This is a picture of idolatry. You know, if you get inside the monkey's head, he is thinking, at least we hope he's thinking something, but he's thinking, look, okay, I smell the seeds, I'm grabbing the seeds, it is in my hand, I can let go whenever I want. Here comes a hunter, there's the seed, I I really want the seed, he's getting closer, he's got something sharp in his hand, (laughs) and he doesn't let go. He doesn't let go and it kills him. That's the picture. They control us. Now this leads to the third question. Matt, what in the world does this have to do with dating? You're talking about monkeys. (laughs) Well, hopefully some of you are connecting the dots, but if you're not, let me just sort of piece this thing together. What this has to do with dating, what idolatry has to do with dating, is that dating and relationships is the number one idol here at ASU, in my personal opinion. From my understanding of getting to know people, getting to know students, this is the number one struggle of this campus. And I'm not talking about the campus like out there. I'm talking about you, like right in here, us. This is our struggle. And so what I want to do is is just sort of lay out how this works. Now, I, I realize this may not be your particular top idol and maybe something else, but this is overwhelmingly across the board, the issue. So you have a friend that struggles with this. So this is for you as well. This is what it looks like. Let's just say that you're not in a relationship. Let's say for the sake of argument, I know some of you are, some of you aren't, but let's just say everybody's not in a relationship. If being in a relationship is the thing that is your idol, here's what happens. It is the thing that you obsess over. You know, every person that comes across, you know, your path that you meet, if they're somewhat attractive, you think, maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the one. I don't know. You know, this affects how long you get ready in the morning. This affects how you style your hair. This This affects the clothes that you wear. This affects who you hang out with. 
This affects who you're kind of positioning yourself around, what kind of people you position yourself around. It sort of dominates everything about your life. It's the number one thing that you talk about. When other people get in relationships, you get really resentful of that. Say, you know, I should be in a relationship, now then this is not fair. Right? This is what happens when, you, when you're single and, and being in a relationship is an idol. Or there's kind of a negative side to this where you just sort of cynically write off romance altogether and say, I want nothing to do with relationships. I'm just done with it. You know, you're, you're still being controlled by relationships. The, the idolatry is still at work in you. It's just you're just experiencing kind of the negative dark side of it. But let's say you meet a special someone and you begin dating and it gets all officialized on Facebook and you're Facebook official and y'all are dating. If, if idolatry is the thing that's driving the relationship or if the other person is your idol, here's what begins to happen. Is that, uh, again, you immerse your life in the other person's. Really, y'all drown into each other, and you've got to be around each other all the time. You cannot not be around each other. Your schedules somehow synchronize and become the same, class schedule-wise. End up becoming the same major, and you didn't even know it. And, and, and what happens is, if, if you aren't around each other, you're still texting yourselves, you know, texting each other all throughout the day, you know, what are you doing, what are you doing? And, and if you're ever around people, like, if you ever are around your friends, which is very rare, uh, everybody's, you know, perpetually nauseous around y'all because of, like, the constant PDA and the fact that you don't talk to anybody else but y'all. This is what begins to happen. But what kind of eventually happens, sadly enough, is that you end up crushing the other person with your expectations on them. You know, because you're setting a standard for them to say, I need you to be God for me, and they cannot live up to those shoes. And so what happens is you get frustrated with them, they get frustrated with you, and then what ends up happening is these long drawn out wars between the two of you where you're screaming at each other in the parking lot at cookout at three in the morning <laughs> and on the phone late yelling at each other. This is what ends up happening. And, and sort of, uh, you know, the, the reason is because you're perpetually disappointed with each other because neither one of you is living up to the standard of being your savior because they can't. So what ends up happening next is uh, if if idolatry is the thing that is driving the relationship, you can't get out of it. You can't get out of the bad relationship, even though it's bad, because you know that you uh, can't let go of each other because you need each other, even though you now hate each other. This is the way that it works. You can't let go because you need each other, but you hate each other. And so what ends up happening is you're like two parasites stuck on the other, sucking the life out of the other person, trying to find satisfaction from the other parasite who's doing the same thing to you. And so what happens is that you're so tangled up in this relationship that you know is unhealthy, you know is terrible, you know it's going nowhere, and you can't muster up the energy to end it. Why? Because you know if you do, it feels like you are cutting your lifeline. You need it. You're like that monkey holding on, I can't let go. You need it. You're addicted. It feels like you're cutting your lifeline if the relationship or the person is, is your idol, is the thing that you're really living for. But let's say you do muster up the courage to actually end it and y'all break up. Idolatry really kind of shows up in the way that y'all end the relationship. And probably you will know more of, of how you are worshiping the other person by the way that y'all break up with each other. Because what happens is you don't just get sad and disappointed. You get over-the-top depressed. You can't eat, and you can't sleep, and you can't think about anything else. You can't talk about anything else. 
all you're doing is like listening to Adele 24-7 on your iPod, <laughs> and that's all you can talk about. But then what happens is that uh, this really weird thing happens where some of you turn into stalkers. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? Where, where if you're not cut off from their Facebook page, you find yourself scrolling through their pictures, trying to see where they've been, where they do, who they're hanging out with, who they were you know, that weekend. You start talking to their friends, trying to figure out, like, what, what are they doing, who, who are they thinking, you know, what are they thinking about. You know, some of you just, like, randomly show up at the other person's apartment, and you're like, what are they doing here? This is weird. Right? We just turn into total creepers. And somehow the, the depression and the sadness at some point turns and it morphs into anger. Over-the-top anger where you want to exact revenge on the way that they've hurt you. And so what that looks like is that you, know, you call them up on the phone, just blast them on the phone, trash them around all your friends. Here's what I want you to see. From beginning to end of this really sad story, idolatry is the thing that is driving the relationship, and idolatry is the thing that is destroying the relationship. So the last question is, okay, how do we find healing? How do we fix this? Here's how. Uh, This is really the question that that we're going to be exploring all semester long. But I just want to show you quickly from this text before we close, okay? Look at verse 4 and 5. Let me read it, and then we'll check it out. Verse 4 says this, Therefore speak to them and tell them, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, When any Israelite sets up idols in his heart and puts a wicked stumbling block before his face and then goes to a prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him myself in keeping with his great idolatry. And then here's the key, verse 5. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have all deserted me for their idols. Without going into all the details of of what God said he's going to do, he basically says, look, I'm going to do something with the intention of recapturing the hearts of the people who have deserted me. He's going after their hearts. And so if you read the rest of the book of Ezekiel, and this is in the Old Testament, and so if you read the rest of the Old Testament, basically what happens is God doesn't just say, hey, stop it. Stop that idolatry stuff. He actually says, he actually makes promises that one day he is going to send somebody who is a surgeon to do heart surgery on us. And so the claim of the Bible is that all of these promises that God has made find their culmination in the person of Jesus Christ. And so what happens is that the claim of the Bible is is that God left heaven to come to earth to live a perfect life and then to die a barbaric death on the cross and then to be raised from the dead in order to kind of usher in a whole new way of being. And this whole rescue mission... Is, is not motivated, is not prompted by anything in us. It is prompted purely by his grace and his mercy to people who have deserted him. And so what begins to happen is, is when, you, when you begin to see that story, the story of the rescue mission of Jesus, which the Bible just refers to in short as the gospel, when you begin to see the gospel as more and more beautiful, what happens is that it begins to expose your idols as lesser gods and as less attractive. Here's how this works. Remember the three things that idols do? The first thing is that they promise you lies. They tell you, look, I will fix you. I will satisfy you. But they don't have the power to actually make good on those promises. The gospel is God making a promise to you saying, look, I will fulfill you. I will give you life. And because he is God, he is strong enough to actually do it. 
Remember the second thing that idols do is that they demand sacrifices. They say, look, perform for me and I will bless you. Uh, they, they say, starve yourself because you're not beautiful enough. They say, ditch those friends because they're not cool enough. I need you to perform and then I will bless you. The gospel is this. That God says, look, I have come down and performed for you primarily to bless you. I I have come in the person of Jesus not just to forgive you, which is amazing in and of itself, but to actually live a perfect life and then give you the credit for it. The gospel is when, when you put your faith in Jesus, you actually get the credit of his perfect life so that when you find yourself in him, in Christ, God looks at you and sees you as perfect. You know what this means? This means that God's not there with his arms crossed looking at you and saying, perform for me. Do something to impress me. Have another quiet time in order so that I may bless you. You know, come to church, do something spiritual to impress me so that I may you know, look favorably upon you. He says, look, I have done everything necessary for your salvation. I have performed for you. Remember the third thing that idols do? Is that they punish you when you fail them. The gospel is precisely this, that God himself was punished because we fail him all the time. When you begin to grasp that, when you begin to grasp that, that God's wrath is extinguished in the person of Jesus, it doesn't matter how many times you have failed him, are currently failing him, or will, will fail him tomorrow, he looks at you with nothing but unyielding, unswerving, committed love and mercy and kindness. That is crazy. You know, one pastor put it this way. He is the only God who will satisfy you when you get him and who will forgive you when you fail him. He's the only God. He's the only God that there is that will actually satisfy you when you get him and will forgive you when you fail him. And so here's what this means. When you begin to get the gospel, not just into your head, but actually into your heart and kind of into your bloodstream, this begins to recapture your heart. God and the person of Jesus and the gospel become more and more beautiful and attractive. And what ends up happening is that all these other idols become less and less attractive. And and your desire for them diminishes. And you're actually freed up then to love other people and not use them to be your savior because your savior is found already in Jesus. That is the good news of this passage. You know, um, Shrek... Number one, the first Shrek movie. How'd you like that transition? Um, <laughs> Shrek number one, you remember the story. Princess Fiona is, is trapped in the tower of the castle. And the story that she's living by is Prince Charming is supposed to come in here and rescue me, and we're going to fall in love. I'm supposed to fall in love with Prince Charming. She's like kind of caught up with this idea and obsessed with it. And so when this gross ogre comes and actually rescues her. She's like, no, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Prince Charming is supposed to be the one. I'm supposed to fall in love with him. And as the story goes on, she's resisting and resisting and resisting. And as she begins to sort of fall in love with Shrek, her desires for Prince Charming diminish. And she begins to kind of see through it and say, okay, I don't, I don't need that anymore. I don't need that because I have this. This is the same way that it works with the gospel. The more and more that you fall in love with the person of Jesus, the less and less you say, I need this person. I need this relationship to make me whole. Because you don't. You are already whole and already satisfied in the person of Jesus. Now let me just wrap up um, 
here because I just need to let you know on the front end, the hope of this semester is not to make y'all better daters. That is not the hope. That's not the goal. The hope of this semester is for you and for me to fall in love with the person of Jesus. And as we begin to fall in love with him, maybe for the first time, maybe for the 500th time, the, the great byproduct of that is that you will become better daters and you will become better single people. But the solution is found in him. It's found in the person and the work of him. And so that's why we're starting here tonight. That's why this is the foundation. And every single week for the rest of the semester, we're just going to kind of build on that foundation. So I'd love to invite you back. Come back next week and we'll explore kind of what this to- where this topic leads us in the weeks ahead. So let me pray. Father, our hearts are restless and insecure for love and for someone to be our Savior. And so often we try to find that in other people and romance and a boyfriend or a girlfriend and a great marriage. And Father, I pray that you would give us faith this semester to look through that and uh, to not find that to be our Savior, but to rest securely and confidently in the Savior that we have already in Jesus, who has rescued us purely by his grace and by his mercy. So would you help us? We would pray, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.